This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Sean McDowell. He is a Christian apologist, author, speaker, blogger, and professor. He is the author, co-author, or editor of over 20 books, including one of the greatest books of all time, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It is on the book list that is on our website. So the next generation will know the fate of the apostles and his newest book that we're going to be talking about a lot today, which is A Rebel's Manifesto. So Sean is also an associate professor in Christian apologetics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. He got his PhD from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and MAs in both theology and philosophy from the Talbot School of Theology. He's also the co-host of the Think Biblically podcast. So I was very excited to talk to him because obviously he's from the first family of Christian apologetics because his dad is Josh McDowell, wrote More Than a Carpenter. So we talk about that. We talk about how he's different from his dad and what apologetics was like back in the day when his dad was, you know, really up and coming and versus what he does now. And so we really look at all those different things. We look at the trends in Christian apologetics and how it's different, how you can't communicate in 2022 in the same way that you could do in 1982 or something like that. But you do talk about evidence that demands a verdict and how people read that book and how they should read that book. You know, the, the reasons why they did that book and kind of how they've changed it over time. And then we dig into a rebel's manifesto, his new book. We talk about what that's about, but that is a book that is uh, written basically for teenagers and giving them a primer on all these really, really difficult topics. So it's going to talk about homosexuality and climate change and transgenderism and guns and racial tension and all these other different things. And so we dig into some of those different categories and we we dig into what may, most Christians talk about today in terms of what it means to be loving. He and I have a great interaction about the transgender thing and you know whether or not you should use someone's chosen made up pronouns even if they don't align with reality or or even basic biology and I really enjoyed our interaction about that. And then I pushed back on him on specifically his chapter on race because I felt like he was holding back in that chapter and there was a lot of ground that he didn't cover. So he's engaged quite a bit on that. And I asked him at the beginning, if we did a good job on the podcast, if he would be willing to come back very, very soon, because I had a bunch of other topics I wanted to talk to him about that I knew we wouldn't be able to get to. And so you'll have to stick around until the end of the interview to see if we did enough good enough job to get him back on the show. So guys, I really, really enjoyed my time with Sean McDowell. So without further ado, let's get into it. Sean McDowell, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Kyle, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on, and I'm just going to start out with something unique here, okay? I've never actually done this before on in an interview, but I'm going to put you on the spot from the very, very beginning, okay? Love so as, as I was preparing for this interview, it became abundantly clear to me that, you know, almost immediately, that there would be too many things that I would want to talk to you about, but that we weren't going to have enough time to sufficiently get into all of them. So to put you on the spot from the jump, assuming that our time together goes well today, can we have you back on here soon? to dig into even more stuff. I'm going to be selfish from the jump here. Can we dedicate to that? You know what? I'm going to hold out and say, you bring your A game, okay. do a good job, 
and then I'll come back. I'm not going to make it too easy on you. I don't think your audience would want okay. that. So bring it. And if you knock it out of the park, for sure. Guys, that's what it's called when you throw down, down the gauntlet to somebody and then they pick that up. They smack you in the <laughs> face with your own glove and then move from there. So here we go. A game is coming out. So let's start as easy as we can possibly start. It seems like Christian apologetics and and writing and speaking is just the McDowell family business. Okay, so you're the McDowell <laughs> who's been in Christian ministry for well over half a century at this point, and he's author of one of the most important works in all of Christian apologetics history, in my opinion, at least. And that's more than a carpenter. And so, mm. I guess just talk to me about that. Like, you know, you've been asked the question before. Why did you get into this? Was it because you wanted to be like daddy -o? You know, do you feel the pressure that he's been doing this for so much longer and, you know, you kind of have a different style? Take me through it. Yeah. What's one of the things I appreciate about my dad is he never once said that I can remember something like, son, you ought to write a book. Hey, mm -hmm. son, you could speak like I do. Hey, son, we need more apologists. Hey, you're a McDowell. Carry the mantle forward. <laughs> yeah. Never once. The narrative as I remember it was... Hey, son, God's gifted you in different ways. Just use it for the kingdom, whatever that looks like. And I think my dad understood that the kind of work that he and I do, there's a lot of pressures and there's also a lot of temptations that can come with it. Mm. And if you're not in it for the right reason, you're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt others a lot more along the way. So I, it was actually the opposite. I actually resisted doing it because I thought, boy, if your dad's like, the Michael Jordan, you know, of a certain realm. Do you really want to go in and face incessant comparisons? Yeah. That gave me some pause. But I think the reason I got into it is I did see my parents live a life of meaning, of significance. My dad is the same on the stage as off. Mm. What you see is what you get. I grew up hearing stories of people impacted by more than a carpenter, evidence that demands verdict, his speaking. And just this sense of a higher calling. And so when I worked through some of my own questions and doubts and started to have my own passion for the next generation, I started to think, you know what? This makes sense to do this. And then when I started it slowly, I think what happened is people would invite me back. I'm like, oh, they're not just inviting me once because I'm a McDowell. That helps. Mm -hmm. and then I got people inviting me, not even knowing my dad. I was like, you know what? Maybe... Maybe I can make a real contribution here. And to make a long story short, just became a passion of my own. So Sean, you, you kind of alluded to this a second ago. Give us an idea of how your focus and your work differs from what your dad did or what, what he's still doing. And then I guess what, what you could give us is provide us with a little bit of a longitudinal idea or study of how apologetics has changed from when, you know, your father was in it in the early days yeah. to kind of where it is now. Those are two great questions. I love these. So let me start with how different from my dad. My dad is an evangelist first. That's mm -hmm. his heart. That's his wiring. Now, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that he grew up in a broken home. He was told that he was an accident, not wanted as a kid. My grandfather, his dad was an alcoholic growing up. My dad's older sister took her own life. And my dad was sexually abused severely for seven years by somebody on their farm until my dad was old enough to slam the man against the wall and say, if you touch me again, I'll kill you. Mm -hmm. And he meant it. And that was in the 40s. So nobody believed when he talked about it then because those things didn't happen. So his come to Jesus moment 
was radical and life-changing and revolutionary. So his whole life is about evangelism. Growing up in the church, my story is more of one. I went through a pretty significant season of doubt and question, even in telling my dad, I'm not sure that I really am convinced this Christian stuff is true. And him encouraging me and loving me along the way, my experience is just different. But I also think I'm wired differently. I'm not first and foremost an evangelist, although I do evangelism and I care about it. I'm first and foremost a teacher. And mm. so I taught high school for years. I'm a professor. So my I'm in a little bit of the academic world. I've written an academic book, some journal articles. I go to some of the conferences. And then I do popular level things. So I got a PhD and my dad didn't need to get a PhD in his mm. world. That's probably the big difference. I think the other difference, and this maybe gets to your second question, is my dad is just wired for the way apologetics was done in uh, probably 60s, 70s, and 80s, the free speech platform. My dad doesn't lack chutzpah, for a better word. He's <laughs> confident. He's always yeah. told me, he's like, son, I'm going to attack hell with a squirt gun. Let's go. Yeah. So when you go back, he cut his teeth in Latin America debating Marxists. I mean, radical, taking over yeah. Marxist rallies, going to Berkeley on the free speech platform. And you grab a mic and you have to shout things. You show confidence. If you show weakness, you're thrown off the stage. That's the way, you know, when people are protesting the war, he's out there preaching Jesus. That's a very different time. Now, in a sense, everybody's shouting, everybody's angry, everybody's offended. I actually think a more powerful apologetic today is one that's relational, one that is gracious, one that builds bridges and listens and does the opposite of cancel culture. I'm wired a little bit more for that kind of engagement. And so that's some of the differences as far as the way apologetics has changed. I mean, when my dad started, there was basically C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer and nobody doing it on a popular level. I mean, right. nobody, Kyle. When C.S. Lewis wasn't even as popular in his time as he is right now, he gets more and more yeah. popular every year that goes by. I think that's right. And he, he died in what, early 60s, I think 63, maybe if I remember. But he, nobody was doing it. There was no Frank Turek. There was no Greg Kokel. There's no J.P. Moreland, no William Lane Craig. You know, Geisler mm -hmm. was coming on the scene. So he really was a trailblazer when he started. And he found a way to take academic stuff and just popularize it and would always share his story as a part of it on college campuses and would get massive audiences, six, eight, 10, 12,000 out for these huge events. And when he started, really the question was, is Christianity true? I think the question has shifted. Now there's a ton of people doing apologetics. You have TikTok apologists, you have Twitter apologists, you have blogs, you have YouTube channels, you have speakers, you have professors, mm -hmm. you have like people doing it in their church. But the question has shifted really from is Christianity true to is Christianity good? Right. And a lot of people think because of hypocrisy, church abuse, the narrative about sexuality, that even if it were true, I don't want to believe it because it's harmful and it's bad. That's how I think some of the apologetic questions have shifted. 
I would say I, I certainly agree with that. And that opens up a, a whole can of worms of stuff that I wasn't even planning on asking you. So we'll see how we do time-wise today. But I, I'm reminded of another apologist that you didn't mention, which is John Lennox. And he's yeah. the type of guy that he was at Oxford when C.S. Lewis was wrapping up his public career. He got to sit down <laughs> in, in lectures at Oxford with C.S. Lewis. And here he is in 2022 and he's still, he's like working on three books right now That's in addition right. to the, all the other ones. And you know, he's a guy that we had on the show a few months back. And I was like, cool. I was literally sitting there like talking to him, like, like, I feel like my intellect couldn't lightly toast a piece of bread. And here's this guy, just this absolute lion of intellect and of, of just intellectualism. And I'm just like, gosh, I'm just, I'm, I'm here for it, but I don't know if I can really make it happen, which leads me to the book that you mentioned earlier, which is one of the most important books that I think exists in terms of Christendom. No, I don't just mean apologetics. And that's evidence that demands a verdict. So mm. we have a book list on our website, the 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. That wow. book is featured in that list. And nice. you know, that list has literature, has apologetics, has theology, money, parenting, and has all these different categories. But that is a book that I'm glad I read it the way that I read it, even though I think I read it incorrectly because <laughs> I read that book as if it were a book that you start in page one and you right, just work right. your way through and about a hundred pages in, I'm like, Oh no, this is a reference book. This That's isn't right. like a read from beginning to end book. Someone should have told me this is why I can't be trusted to do things on my own. But if you have a question about, a random topic about creation or about um, the resurrection or about the, the first century church or something like that. You just go to the table of contents of that book and then you start digging and the level of footnotes is astonishing. It's like a Thomas Sowell book. I mean, it's just absolutely <laughs> incredible. And so talk to me a little bit about that book because that is a book that you worked on with your father. And I mean, it's a tome. It, it is dense. It's like, Man, it's just one of those books that if you're a Christian, that's not on your bookshelf, you're messing up. So the story behind this book is really interesting. My dad, his journey to faith, I talked about his broken background as he was challenged by some Christians to consider the claims of Christ. And really what drew them is that this group of Christians had peace. They had love. Their lives were different. He wanted to know. And they mentioned this guy, Jesus. He's like, give me a break. I'm going to prove that the Bible's false. Jesus was not God, didn't rise from the grave. Well, at this time, there was no internet. There were no apologetic books you could really get on this. Very few. So he had enough money he had saved up. He's always been an entrepreneur, even though it is in his probably, I don't know, about 20, 21 years old, maybe, from a painting business. He travels internationally, go to these museums, to go to all these sites to find some of the original evidence to examine manuscripts, ends up concluding that Christianity is actually true. Well, a few years later, when he's worked for Campus Crusade for Christ, he decides, you know what? I'm going to take some of my notes, put them together, staple them together. I don't know, maybe eight or 10 pages and just sell them at an event. And he told me, he goes, son, they sold like wildfire. He goes, then I knew I was on to something. And so he decides to write a book. And the crazy thing, Kyle, is no publisher wants the book. They're like, it's not going to sell if it's wow. a reference book. It's facts. Yeah. It's arguments. Yeah, yeah. You know, now I think it's well over 4 million copies. I mean, it could have made some publishers rich just in mm. having that book. So got a publisher, wrote it in 70. I got to think about this. 72. Mordecai Carpenter was 77. Updated 80s. Updated it in the 90s. 
And then 2017, he asked me to head up an update of the book. And so we had about a dozen leading scholars in the world, three dozen grad students from our apologetics program at Biola, and spent about two years updating this book. And the cool thing to me is it won an award in its category for book of the year, which for me, it only mattered as a way of just honoring my dad and this powerful resource he put together for the kingdom. But you're right. It's not meant to be read through. But if I had a dollar every time somebody told me what you told me and said they just did, I might be rich. <laughs> hey, but the thing was, is like, even if you read it that way, it's not like you won't get value out of it. But there, yeah. there, are, thing, there are times there are books that they're just not meant to be read that way. That's because right. I'm a narrative sponge. So I can read a 500 page book. And then I can tell you in three minutes or less the high points of this book and why mm. it's going to be important for you in your life. I can't do that with that book necessarily. Like I got to go into a, a different area to explain why it's so important. So that that's kind of the seminal work for me, for, for you and your, your dad combined, uh, because like, you know, I'll answer for you, but if we had to delete the rest of y'all's catalogs of, of everything that you've ever written, and that was the one thing that survived, humanity mm. would be better for it. So there's your compliment. <laughs> no, I'm not just buttering you up so that you'll come back on the show here soon because that's what I want. Okay. I'm still keeping my A game uh, game face on right now, but we do need to talk about your new book or Tyndale. Your publisher is going to be really, really mad at me. It's called A Rebel's Manifesto. And so I just finished reading this. The uh, subtitle is Choosing Truth real justice and love amid the noise of today's world. And so I want you to give us an idea about where, where the idea for this book came from and what it's about and all that kind of normal generic stuff. But I want to read a quote from early in the book because I think it helps set up what the book's about. And then we'll start digging into some individual things mm. from the book. But here's the quote. One reason it is so challenging to love our neighbors today is that our culture operates under a different definition of love than held by Jesus. Today, love means affirming someone's behavior and beliefs. It means accepting someone for who they believe themselves to be. And it means agreeing with however someone feels about themselves. If not, you're hateful. So again, you talk about love right there in that quote. Love is in the, the subtitle of the book. So a rebel's manifesto. Why'd you write it? What's it for? What do you want readers to get out of it? Yeah, so people who know me in my ministry would be like a rebel's manifesto. I'm not sure Sean strikes me as the rebel. Why <laughs> that title? And uh, some of it comes from the fact that I, I was thinking about recently how rock music represents rebellion. So going back to the 50s, rebellion against certain racial injustice. In the 60s, against the system. In the 70s, against war, etc. But when you get into the early 2000s with social media, rock music has lost in terms of the dress, in terms of the sound, in terms of the lyrics. It's lost its contrarian voice because everybody has a medium or a TikTok account to shout to the world and make their point. So given where our culture's gone, I thought, what does it mean to be a rebel today? What does it mean to be contrarian? It actually means to be the opposite. Rather than shouting somebody down, rather than canceling somebody, it actually means building bridges, trying to love somebody in many of the ways that Jesus did when he was physically here on earth. So I'm trying to get people to realize there's a different way of being a rebel today. And so the book, really what it does is I, I got the top 25 most controversial issues I could come across with the help of students, Christian school teachers, youth pastors, whether it's immigration, gun control, transgender, climate change, 
and just said, what Christian truths apply to this? How do we think about it? And then how do we engage our neighbors in positive conversations about these issues that matter? Now, some issues we die on because they're tied to the heart of the gospel. Others issues we don't have to die on. And we can show charity and kindness to others uh, and learn from it and build relationships. So basically, it's a book written for students to try to say, how do you stand boldly for truth in a loving fashion as a rebel, which means to follow Jesus today? That's kind of the heart of it. And so it certainly reads that way. So for a lot of guys, especially guys that are fans of this podcast, it might seem rather elementary, but you have to remember the the target audience is going to be teenagers that haven't spent decades thinking through some of these issues or really dug into the philosophies of the world. These are those types of things. In a lot of ways, this is an introduction to those subject matters, and then it will tee them up to go and check them out in other areas. So to the guys listening to this, if you have teenagers right now and you're struggling with some of the conversations around those really important incendiary and, you know, dramatic topics. This is a great primer for some of those conversations. So it's in the show notes. You guys can obviously check it out, but let's dig into some of the stuff from the book. There was another short quote from early in the book that I think is important because it kind of, you know, describes the moment we're in. Here is a very important point to remember. Disagreement about truth does not erase the existence of truth. So I don't even know if you use the word in that section because I can't remember, but you're talking about postmodernism there because postmodernism has eroded the foundations of truth. There's no such thing as capital T truth anymore. There's only lowercase t truth and it's usually preceded by the word my. This is my truth and what people mean when they say that are these are my facts. These, these are not things like, you know what I mean? Because if you can destroy capital T truth, then you are in control of quote unquote facts. So talk to me about uh, of kind of the, the world that we live in now, which is another reason why apologetics has changed because in the 60s, 70s and 80s, it's like, is this true or is this not? But now we don't have a binary category of true or not true. It's true or not true for you or for him or for me. It's just a crazy, crazy space and time that we live in. Yeah. I saw a study recently that said we used to have different interpretations now we have different facts. <laughs> and yeah. at least that's how we see the world. We used to be able to agree on certain facts, but then determine how we interpret those facts. Now, literally, it's like people live in different universes. So what happens is we demonize people who see the world differently than we do, breaks down communication, doesn't help, and actually gets us further away from knowing the truth. A phrase that we hear a lot that I think captures this postmodern idea that you're getting at is you'll hear people say, live your truth. Yeah. I remember during the Kavanaugh hearings when Ford was raising some charges, Senator Booker kept saying to Ford, share your truth, share your truth. And I'm sitting here going, wasn't this guy trained at Stanford? How She doesn't have her own truth. Right. She has her own experiences. She has her own beliefs. But there is a truth about whether those charges happened or not, and that's what we need to figure out. Mm -hmm. So I'll say to people, you can have your own beliefs, but you cannot have your own truth. You can have your own belief. You can live your beliefs. In fact, we all live our beliefs, but you can't have your own truth because truth is when a belief matches up with reality. That's what people miss. Now, why do we hear people saying, like you said, Kyle, you know, that may be true for you, but not true for me. That's my truth, not your truth. Live your truth. 
the locus of truth has shifted. So back to when my dad started ministry, 60s and 70s, people would say, give me facts, give me proof, give me evidence. Mm -hmm. The assumption was there's a truth in the world. We discover that truth. Maybe it's Marxism. Maybe it's Christianity. Maybe it's Islam. Maybe it's atheism. And then we conform our lives to that external truth. Now it's shifted inside that if I simply believe something, then it's true for me. It's not about the facts in the world. It's about my feelings, my choice, my autonomy. And if you don't affirm it, you're the bigot, you're hateful, you're intolerant. So one way that my, my dad framed it for me again that was helpful is he said, when you go back to like the 70s, there was this sense that the problem is out in the world and we could all identify it in the world and fix it. Now the problem has shifted internally to my feelings, to my mental health, to mm-hmm. my autonomy. It's gone from external to internal, from objective to subjective. And it's almost like truth is out to get them, right? So these people that get offended by by words and by other things, because because the reality is, is truth is undergirded or the scaffolding beneath truth is something called facts. And so I use this example all the time because it's just common for people, but Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. That is true and undergirded by a bunch of facts. Abraham Lincoln existed. There was an election. It came after the 15th president and before the 17th president. He won that election. These are all facts that undergird a truth. And the thing about it is now is I feel like people, especially conservatives and Christians that are just really, really nice and want to be known for how nice they are. And they want to be known for what they're for, not what they're against and all these nonsense, you know, slogans. It's like, it's okay to point out that we can have different lenses through which we view things, but we can't have different facts because again, you grow up in an Eastern Orthodox context versus growing up in a Catholic Roman Catholic context. Obviously your lenses are different, but it doesn't change the truth or falsehood of the resurrection as an example. And so I think that's kind of where we've gotten to is we, we get into this struggle and we're, we're there. There are people that are uncomfortable with relying on truth because they're so concerned about people's feelings. And it's just like, man, at at a certain point we have to get to bedrock, you know? Hmm. I think that's really well said. It's interesting. I was just doing a a book review with my co-host for this podcast that I do about a transgender male and the experience with scripture. And at the beginning, uh, what this author says was, you might be thinking that queer and trans writers are making God in their own image. In other words, you might say we're beginning with this narrative and forcing scripture into our narrative. And then this writer said, but the reality is the obvious problem is we all start from somewhere and have certain biases. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is such a straw man. There's, yes, we all have biases, but we can work to minimize those biases. We can read different perspectives We can talk to people who see the world differently. Just because we have biases and are standing somewhere doesn't mean we don't have access to truth. Right. So the mere fact that I have a certain race and a certain socioeconomic status doesn't determine that I can't know truth and therefore it's all relative. Rather, what it should do is make me say, okay, I wonder if 
I see the certain world because I have a skin color. Okay, that's an important question. I wonder if because I'm a male, I want like those are fair questions because I'm a Christian biases, but they don't determine truth and blind me if we work hard to know what is true. Those are the two extremes that I've seen. And I think it's an unhelpful way to move forward. And we as Christians got to be willing to listen to different perspectives, read books, work hard to minimize so we can know truth. And then frankly, make sure we're not doing the same thing. Make sure we're not interpreting the data in a way that's comfortable to us and rejecting voices that disagree with us. We've got to make sure we're willing to follow truth, even if it's inconvenient. I think to a degree as well that Christians have potentially acquiesced too much to worldviews that don't comport at all with the scripture. And so you see a lot of people now using language like, oh, you know what? We're just going to use critical race theory as a lens to help us understand the plight of these apparently homogenous groups of people that have a certain level of melanin. And it's just like, Wait, wait, wait a minute. Like, why would you use a worldview that comes from critical theory, that comes from the Frankfurt School, which comes from Karl Marx, which comes from the butthole of Satan? Like, why in the world would you like go to that and be like, I want to use this as a lens through which we can help spread the gospel? It's like, this is oil and water. These things cannot mix. But I do want to just stay on the transgender topic since you brought it up because, you know, I saw this recently talked about on my show. There was a speaker at Trinity College at Cambridge that talked about how Jesus was transgender. And had a transgender yeah. body and he used all these paintings and artwork to kind of prove his point. And then the Dean came out and said, yeah, yeah, that's plausible because that's where we get to now. It's like, we don't want to be mean. We think that being nice to our neighbor is akin to, we should just lie to our neighbor. And so do you cover the transgender topic in the book? Again, it's brief and it's a primer. The specific thing on the transgender topic I want to talk to you about, Sean, is Christians that will acquiesce to pronoun requests even when it violates truth. So uh, a guy that I respect a lot, I've been on a show a couple of times, Justin Brierley over in the UK, whenever he's had a transgender person on his podcast, knowing the biological sex of the person, he will use the chosen pronouns of that person, which does not align with truth and does not align with, with uh, you know their biological sex. And when he came on my show, I asked him about that as politely as I could and said, hey man, Truth is is the ethic that we should hold above everything else, not necessarily someone's feelings. That doesn't mean you should be demonstrably, you know, argumentative with somebody when you first get to know them. But if you have a problem with truth, like just use their name. I don't care what you call yourself, but I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to allow you to compel me to use speech that I know to be untrue. But talk to me about the myriad of Christians that disagree with me that they're like, ah, pronouns are just pronouns. It doesn't really matter. So- I'll tell you my position on this one. I think there's generally two takes that Christians have. One is the position you laid out, I think, very carefully. And well, that I'm not going to lie and speak something that's not true. So if I use a preferred pronoun, I'm being I'm violating my conscience. Yeah. My answer would be don't violate your conscience. You should not if you feel that way, Kyle. Now, by the way, some Christians can have seared consciences if they haven't prayed about something, yeah, haven't got guidance, haven't been reflective on it. But in this case, I can tell you've thought about this. Don't violate it. I was talking about this with my co-host and he goes, he goes, Sean, here's how I see it. He goes, I'm willing to simply meet somebody where they are at relationally for the sake of speaking truth to them. This is somebody who's been thoughtful, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't feel coerced into it. He says, my conscience says, 
if I'm not willing to do this, this conversation is going to break down and they're not even going to hear me. So before this person can change who they are, they've got to have Jesus the cleaner upper from the inside. That's his position. And because this person is so thoughtful, I'm not going to say to him, hey, you should use that pronoun. I wouldn't say to Justin, who's my friend, because he's a very thoughtful person. Uh, I'm not going to tell him he's wrong on his conscience. Now, some people are going to tell me I'm being soft and I'm being mistaken. I can tell you for me, I would have a hard time using a preferred pronoun because I feel the way that you do. I feel there's a certain coercion sometimes that comes into this that says, if you're going to respect me, you have to use this language. So respect is fully on that person's terms without a sense from the worldview and where I'm coming from. I would have a hard time. I don't mind avoiding pronouns. I don't mind using a person's first name. That stuff doesn't bother me. But in my own conscience, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. The only exception might be in a personal relationship with somebody that's not public, then that would concern me less if we're able to talk it through and find mm-hmm. a certain level of common ground. But I, that's where I'm at with that with that topic. I appreciate you going into that detail. And this is what I would ask your co-host. This is what I would ask Justin if I were sitting down with him and we were having yep. this discussion. I would say... What if somebody has come over to your home and they identify as a furry? And so these are a category of people that identify as animals. So they identify as house cats or dogs or something like that. And I would ask them, ask him, would it be loving of you to invite someone over to dinner and to put it on a bowl on the floor because they identify as a furry? Is that a loving thing to that person? After the meal, would you put them on a leash and take them out to use the restroom in the yard? Like where, where do we take this and where do we stop this? Because you might be like, oh, that, well, that's, that's ridiculous. That's egregious. It's categorically the same as somebody who is confused about their gender and you playing into that confusion and mainlining it and mainstreaming it and pretending like you're being nice and virtuous. So obviously I'm a little bit more abrasive in my approach, but that would be my question to him. And I would just let it sit there in the ether and be like, What are you going to do with that person? Because there are people that think they are those things. They genuinely believe that. There are people that think they're furniture. And so if someone comes over to my house and they identify as a chair, shall I sit on them lest I be called a a judgmental bigot? Do you kind of see what I'm saying? I think that's totally fair. Now, I'm not going to mention who it was, but there's a well-known apologist you would recognize. And I asked this. I said, hey, would you use a preferred pronoun? He said, Sean, I would call somebody a horse if that's what it took to be in relationship with that person to share Jesus with them. Now, Mm. you might disagree, and I doubt that apologists would say, yeah, I'll I'll put him out in the stall and I'll feed him water under a trough. Like, we're all going to draw the line somewhere. The question is just where are we going to draw that line uh, is where the debate comes in. So I think that's totally a fair question. I think that's the right question. Uh, but I think even a well-known apologist who you know and respect, uh, and that's not me, by the way, who answered that, <laughs> would would give that response. Uh, so I'll put it this way. So I've said uh, a lot of judgmental and 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 uh, things about this particular pastor, but Craig Rochelle of Life Church. I attended his church for over ten years. I think his standard. Uh, I don't know if he still holds to the standard, but I remember him saying over and over and over is that he and the church is going to do anything short of sin to bring people to the gospel. To, to bring them. And so it's like, if you start your 
evangelical conversation and relationship with somebody on a lie, on a falsehood. I, I think it's not exactly fruit of the poisonous tree to where, okay, you know, we, we can't take anything else, but I, I liken it to things like this. You know, when all the revelations came out about Robbie Zacharias and the, the horrific mm. uh, sexual deviant that he was, I wish he was still alive to be able to deal with those consequences. Unfortunately, he died before all that happened. But what he caused is not just pain and agony and for, for all of his victims, for all the people that came to a RZIM event and were saved at an event, they're now all of a sudden questioning their own salvation because of the foundation that was laid out by the man that gave them the so-called truth. You know, you could liken it to, to Christians pretending like God exists, but, you know, lying to their kids about the Easter bunny and Santa and all these other things and expecting whenever they come of age to not believe in those things anymore, that they'll still believe in this God that they can't see either. And so I think it creates a lot of interest that I think people are given short shrift and not enough, uh, not enough thoughts to, but I think we, but we belabored that point. I want to move on to some other things that are going to hey, potentially can, get us. Yeah. Yeah. Go can, ahead. Can I, can I make one point? Yeah. I, I don't know the context with which this pastor said that I'm not sure I would frame it the same and say anything short of sin. The way I would approach it is I want to be as charitable to the person as I can be without violating my conscience and doing anything biblically wrong. Okay. So what does that look like? If someone says to me, hey, Sean, you know, can you use my preferred pronoun? I would say, you know, I sense this is something really important to you. Would you be willing to go to coffee with me and sit down and share about your experience being transgender? All I want to do is listen and understand. The Bible has a lot to say, Kyle, about speaking after we've listening. After we've listened first, there's Proverbs that talk about the importance of understanding. And I would sit down and say, tell me when you first experienced gender dysphoria or gender expectations. Uh, who did you first tell? How did people respond? How does this affect your faith? How, have you ever had doubts? I would just listen to understand this person's story. Then I would say, tell me why it's so important to you that I use this preferred pronoun. My only goal is to understand. And at the end, I'm going to say, do you feel like I've taken the time to understand where you're coming from? Do you feel like I've been empathetic? Yes. Would you be willing to hear me out about my worldview, where I'm coming from, and why using preferred pronouns is also very significant to me? Now, the person can say no, and then what have you done? You've extended as much charity as you can, mm -hmm. and then you have a clear conscience before the Lord You've bent over backwards, so to speak, to try to show kindness and love to this person. And then you lay out, if you have the kind of concerns that you and I have and say, you know what, I think God has made us male and female and that our gender identity is to match up with our bodily sex. I don't think I truly am what I believe in my mind. My body is a part of who I am. So just like you want to be a person who's authentic and live out who you believe you are, I want to be an authentic follower of Jesus. And Jesus tells me to speak the truth. So are you asking me to be inauthentic to who I am? That's a really interesting question I've asked in different settings. And then at the end, I just say, given how difficult this is and the worlds we're coming from, I'm committed to be in a relationship with you. Is there a way we can find common ground to proceed? 
and then you haven't done anything wrong, if that's your understanding, like you and I have, you've shown understanding, you've shown empathy, you've shown kindness. That's how I'd like Christians to proceed. Now, still, some people say you're a bigot, I hateful, uh, people are taking their own lives because of your non-affirming theology. I can't control that response, but I can control how I treat people. That's how I would approach something like this. I'm I'm really glad actually that you laid that out in such detailed fashion because this is going to come as a shock to you. But I'm a get to the point kind of a person. <laughs> it's like you know, like so. What's funny is immediately when you pose that question, like if someone came up to you and said, "Will you use my preferred pronouns?" I'd be like, "No." Like why, why would, that's just my default mechanism. My default I get mechanism. It. I get it. Yeah, it's just like, I, you know, people love to use the word nuance. It's a word that dumb people use to sound smart. And it's like, no, there's not a whole lot of nuance here. The answer is no. And so like, but I, I think that's a really good, I guess you can say apologetic for how you can have a true and lasting impact on somebody. All the while understanding that you are risking chips that you may never get back because you could spend a lot of time and energy on this person and get back around to the same exact place. But that's not the only potential outcome, and some of the other outcomes could be positive as well. So let's move off the transgenderism topic and get to a more low-key topic that nobody's really concerned about. Let's talk about homosexuality. So uh, specifically, I want to talk about the approval of same-sex lifestyles and actions within the church. Okay, so let's just let's just start there with, you know, kind of uh, gay affirming churches and things like that. I want to read a quote from the book that Part of it just kind of caught me a little bit off guard, but I'll read the whole thing so we have the full context. Although Jesus did not mention homosexual behavior explicitly in his teaching, he condemned all sexual behavior outside of marriage, the marriage relationship. See, for example, Mark 7, 21 through 22, which would include both heterosexual and homosexual behavior. To put it simply, Jesus believed that same-sex sexual behavior violated God's design for sexuality. So, at, you know, as it ends there, that ends with a thump and not a thud. Like, I'm good with that. The thing that caught me off guard was the very beginning. Although Jesus did not mention homosexual behavior explicitly in his teaching. And what that automatically reminded me of is Carl Lentz, the the, the now ashamed uh, pastor formerly yeah. of Hillsong, New York City, when he yep. went on The View and he was asked specifically about homosexuality, it may have been with Katie Couric, it was one of those interviews he did when he was everybody's favorite good-looking pastor there for five seconds. But he was asked specifically about that and he said, you know what? Uh, Jesus never talked about homosexuality like uh, from uh, you know during his ministry, so I'm not going to talk about it from the pulpit. And it was like, uh, wait a minute. The word that was used to record in the Greek what Jesus was talking about was pornea, which was talking about any sex outside of a man and a woman underneath you know the the connection and covenant of marriage before God. So that included masturbation and sex outside of wedlock and multiple partners heterosexual or homosexuality and all that. So I feel like just by adding that little like clarifying statement at the beginning about how he never explicitly talked about it. I don't want to say it's inaccurate because here I am talking to a guy that's a professor at Biola about something, you know, that goes back to the Greek language. You know, I'm, I'm getting out beyond myself a little bit, but I think that's a, that's a little dangerous framing it that way because I know what you mean, but I think some people are going to focus in on the first part and forget the rest of the paragraph. Well, if somebody's going to take that line out of context and ignore the rest of what I said, I can't control that. People sure. do that with the Bible. I think what I said is true. The Bible doesn't explicitly talk about uh, Jesus didn't explicitly. At least you could say we don't have record of Jesus explicitly addressing same-sex sexual behavior. That's a fact. 
But, but then did he the not next- do that? Like, like, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt, but did he not do that? In because he obviously he would have spoke it in you know ancient Aramaic or whatever. But when it was recorded as Pornia, obviously the Greek language is, is I, I get, easier. I get go, that. go for it. Yeah, that's the next point that I make. Okay, because I'm only making a distinction between directly and indirectly, okay. explicitly and implicitly. Because something is stated indirectly or implicitly doesn't mean Jesus didn't clearly condemn it. And that's exactly what my point is. Got it. So for Jesus doesn't have to say same sex marriage is sinful and against God's design. He wouldn't have spoken into that because there was no debate about the morality of that within the Judeo Christian tradition until five minutes ago, historically speaking. (laughs) But when Jesus affirms that marriage is one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime in Matthew 19, and he says, Pornea is wrong. He is clearly saying that any sexual behavior, including same sex sexual behavior, is wrong. So it's a nuance that I think is important to be accurate to the text. It doesn't undermine how clear Jesus is about sexuality. Now, if I was on the view, here's how I would have responded to this I would have said, you know, we got to realize that the question of homosexuality is a very, very sensitive question. And there's some people waiting right now, no matter what I say, to condemn me. Yeah, right. So first off, we got to realize Jesus is the one who gave us the ethic to love our neighbors, the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who gave us the ethic to love our enemies. Jesus is the one who affirmed Genesis and said, we are all made in God's image and have value. I am a follower of Jesus. But Jesus also talked about what marriage is. He also talked about sexually immoral behavior that would include divorce, it would include looking at pornography, and it would include same-sex sexual behavior. I'm a follower of Jesus on this, I think he got it right. Are you telling me on the view that you know better than Jesus? And I'd let it sit. And it would have been fun to see that happen. Maybe we can finagle you onto that show and then we can have a redo because I feel like Carl Lentz crapped the bed on that one. So, well, I appreciate you going into that because again, it's one of those topics that's, you know, it's not only important to people, it's very, very personal to people and their experience. And obviously if you've never had same sex attraction, you can't really understand like these Christians that are very prominent that have basically said, yeah, I'm going to go to bed alone for the rest of my life for the sake of Christ. Mm -hmm. And that is literally going to be my cross to bear. Like I don't have to do that. Right. Because I wasn't given that as a struggle, but you know, some people struggle with chemical dependency, right? Some people struggle with anger and violence. Like that we all kind of have our thing that we have to try and overcome. So, um, at this point of the interview, everyone might be like, all right, you guys are agreeing too much. And so as much as I agree with most everything you said in the book, there actually were, if I'm being honest, there were a couple of low points in the book for me. And it was specifically your chapters about race in America and guns. And so to be charitable and also in interest of time, I'm going to let you pick which one we're going to talk about. So you either get to talk about race in America or guns and we'll dig in. So which one do you want to talk about? Uh, Let's do race since you mentioned it first. So um, one thing as I'm reading through your book is I had to constantly remind myself that this 
this book was not really meant for a guy like me specifically because I spend, <laughs> okay. I spend hours and hours and hours a week digging into yeah. these topics, thinking about it, talking about it on the show. And so like it, it, you know, I'm, I'm beyond a lot of the arguments just because I've been marinated in it for so long, but even knowing the target audience, I thought that your chapter on race was a little bit weak tea. It was almost like you were holding back uh, a little bit. So I wanted to maybe dig in a little bit deeper into some points that maybe I, I missed or, you know, I'm, yep. I'm maybe making out, making yeah. something out to not be what it was. So it's Let's chapter it. 14 called racial yep. tension. You seem to speak out of both sides of your mouth in the chapter. In my opinion, you kind of hint that systemic racism is real, but you stop short of actually saying that and actually providing like very specific examples. Uh, you make the claim that there are people that think that racism doesn't exist at all. And I got to be honest, I don't know of a single human in existence that actually believes that racism doesn't exist. Yeah, in the book, you dedicate a whopping three sentences to the biggest racial grift in American history, which is Black Lives Matter. And so like when I got to the end of the chapter, I was shocked that there weren't more pages in it, that there wasn't a little bit more time and effort spent with that. And especially knowing, and I think you said this in the book, that the last time you wrote about all these different incendiary topics, you didn't talk about race and people kind of gave you crap for that. So this was kind of like you making up for, you know, not writing about it the first time to, you know, this was going to be the time when you really step up to the plate and take a swing or for you being a college basketball player, step up to the foul line and sink the last, you know, uh, second, you know, free throws to win the, win it for your team. But talk to me a little bit about that chapter, because I don't want to make a bunch of assumptions about where you were at going into it. But again, Whenever I was done, I was like, yeah, that just didn't hit the mark for me. So that's fair. I've had people from the right and probably from the left give me the same kind of feedback. Some okay. said, we want you to speak up more about systemic racism and condemn Black Lives Matters. And then we've had yeah. people from the other side. <laughs> and by the way, these are all Bible-believing conservative Christians. So if you take the, you've asked me about transgender and you've asked me about homosexuality. The Bible is very clear about God's design for what it means to be human, male and female, and God's design for marriage. That is not an in-house issue Christians can differ on. Mm. When it comes to issues of race, there's a whole lot of difference within the body of Christ about Black Lives Matters. And of course, we've got to make a distinction between the organization and, and the, the phrase. Yeah, and I have a full-on blog making a distinction how the organization itself is Marxist in its roots, it's mm -hmm. pro-choice, it's critical theory. I quote all that stuff and they took their site down, interestingly enough, of course, from yeah. the phrase, by the way. So I draw out some of those distinctions. The key is, again, Bible-believing conservative Christians are going to differ over the depth of systemic racism, how we best answer it. This is a book that's meant to give people tools and principles and biblical ideas, and then go talk them through with people. And so if you had a son, maybe you do. He reads this, you talk through them and say, hey, he gave three lines of systemic racism. What's the evidence for systemic racism? Uh, how strong is it? Are we okay with systemic racism? Where do we find it? What are lies about systemic racism? That's not the purpose of this, uh, of this chapter. The purpose of this chapter is to that. How, what's a biblical approach to race? What are some mistakes that people make, broadly speaking? 
How do we make some progress on racial tension? I approached it differently than I did the trans issue because I think it's more of an in-house issue than it is one that's defining really the faith itself. That's why. Now, that might still not satisfy you, but that was my approach to the chapter differently than, say, trans. Well, it's satisfying enough, and I think to get me to, I guess, complete satisfaction, I would ask this follow-up. So let's say you were writing a magnum opus of all of these subjects. So not, you know, 250 pages, but, you know, you're you're trying to be in William Lane Craig land where you're writing this magnum opus that's like eight or 900 pages long or something like that. What things did you not discuss in full detail? Where did you hold back in, in that specific chapter? What would be the thing specifically on the subject of race that you would have given, you know, pages and pages and pages to, as opposed to just maybe a few sentences? I think I would have gone into questions of systemic racism. I think the heart of critical race theory is an assumption that there is systemic racism. It's not, I think I would have unpacked one of the ideas that critical theory says not is racism a factor, but how is racism a factor? And that biases the data towards racism always being a factor. Right. right. Now, like yeah. you said earlier, I think race can be a factor. And I think we need to be aware and honest. If it is a factor, then we should be willing to call it out. But my problem with things like critical race theory is they assume it and then end up not discovering the truth, bias the data, and we're seeing race where it doesn't exist. So I right. would unpack that a lot more in a way that I just wasn't able to. So it almost goes back to the lenses comment from earlier to where it's like, okay, if I were to go out today looking to be offended as a white male, it's going to be a shock to know that I'm going to find times where I feel offended because of my immutable characteristics. So if you go out, it's like these DEI, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion offices at campuses or companies. Isn't it amazing how when they do their little annual report, they've always found evidences of racism where most people thought they didn't exist because it's like they were looking for it and the lens through which they saw it is the least charitable lens possible. So when someone says, oh, hey, where are you from? And that person meant like, hey, you have a little bit of a Southern accent. I wonder what state you're from. Someone's going to be like, oh, do you think I'm not American because I have dark skin? Right. Of course, like that's going to go down as a microaggression or a macroaggression sure. or, or something like that. So I think we kind of to get into that a little bit um, to, to leave the book. And again, and, the and guys. By, and by the way, before, before we leave race, you got to keep in mind, what's the purpose of this book? It's really not a culture warrior book. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that. This is a book for indiv individuals to better engage their neighbors around them who see the world differently. That's the purpose of this. So I have people who are white, people who are black, people on the left, people on the right who are going to read this. And I'm trying to push some of their assumptions and get them to say, is this biblical? How do I make progress in this area with other Christians and non-Christians? So for me, I've read a, a good amount of critical theory. And I have definite concerns with it on an intellectual level. But I've also had a lot of Bible-believing African-American friends reach out to me just over the years and say things like, why is the white community so worried about critical race theory? This feels like a diversion from trying to understand us and our experience. I'm like, okay, tell me about that. How do you process this? 
Am I just willing to listen and understand where somebody is at? I think there's a way to do that without affirming ideas that I might take serious issue with and I do in other contexts. That's it. So a lot of my black friends have told me, and I'm asking them, I'm like, how do you think we make progress in racial relations? One of the most common things they'll say to me is they'll say, Sean, just be willing to listen. I'm like, okay, that's where I'll start. Now we got to challenge ideas and we got to go further, but am I willing to start there? That's all I'm saying. That's the heart of the chapter. And in 1500 words, you can only say so much. Sure. And I think for me, I kind of go back to, what was it when uh, Morgan Freeman, he was being interviewed on CNN or 60 minutes or something like that. And you know, the, the, the white journalist is basically teeing up to talk about how horrible and racist America is. And he goes, yeah, I'm done talking about it. Like, you know how we stop racism in this country? We stop, we stop talking about race. Like we don't have black history month. We just have history, right? And because black history is American history and all these different things. And so for me, I, I try not to lean towards the homogeneity of any group. That's why I try to not say the black community or the gay community or the blank community, because pretending as if these people are all the exact same because of the level of melanin in their skin. I know a lot of people during George Floyd summer, because he died in police custody and people pretended like it was because he was black and it didn't have anything else to do with anything else. They were like, okay, let's invite this random black person up on stage at the church and let's ask questions to him because we want to get to know the plight of the American black man. And it's like, wait a minute. Like you're, you're, you're trying to compare him to a, a criminal in Minnesota. Like this is a guy that owns a, owns a coffee shop down the street. Like what kind of magical thing do you think he's going to tell you that is going to change your group of an entire race of people that all think and act and vote and feel differently about every subject. And again, we're, we're running short on time today, so it's kind of hard to really dig in, but I, I sure. appreciate your approach to the chapter and, and I appreciate you, you answering my questions on, on all those different things, but you mentioned the culture wars there. So this will be our last question of the day. And, and then we'll wrap up. There are a lot of Christians now, Sean, that think it is the virtuous thing to do to not lower themselves to fighting in the culture wars wars. I had some dork on my podcast here recently that basically was like, I want to be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against. And I'm not going to talk about any of the things happening in culture until we figure out what's going on in the church. And then I asked him, I was like, wait, so, you know, you're not going to, publicly talk about how abortion is a slaughter of the unborn, about how all these, all these things in culture, the, the mutilization of, of, of children, the sexualization of children, um, you know, changing the term from pedophile to, to minor attracted persons and all that. You're not going to talk about any of that because there are people in the church that are still sinners. And he basically said yes. And so for me, I struggle with Christians that are using that as, you know, almost like a shield from them having to actually dig in to the culture and to push back against darkness, which undaunted life we're here to equip men to push back darkness. But talk to me about Christians that are unwilling to, to even engage in the smallest way possible in the culture wars, which is where a lot of these biblically centered things go into because abortion is not a government law issue, but it does play out in that arena. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think there's two mistakes we can make. I think there's some people who say, you know what? I'm God's prophet. I'm speaking truth. I don't care how it lands. And they die on every hill and they're sure. jerks in terms of how they communicate and it's not effective. That's one mistake. On the other hand, there's those who just say, I just want to be nice. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't ever want to say anything that's not going to land well. Well, I think that's also a mistake. There is a time and a place and a need for a prophetic voice today that cannot and should not go away. But 
There's also a huge need in our cancel culture for people in their interpersonal relationships to learn how to listen better, to find common ground, to love their neighbor and meet them where they're at. I'm not sure we do that well. So the reality is some of us are wired more towards being a prophetic voice. Some of us have more of a pastoral voice. It's not right or wrong. It's just different. And we need to lean into that. That's for sure. But I think there's a way to do better. Like the purpose of the whole book is like, how can I listen better? How can I get through the noise and actually ask the question, how is my statement going to land with somebody so I can show love to them so they can know the body of Christ without backing down on speaking truth on important topics? I've tried to do that. I've done some pretty bold videos on issues of sexuality and on pro-life and on some other controversial topics while trying to be gracious with people interpersonally. Don't pretend I always have it down, but I think and believe there's room for both. So to the prophet who's just out there speaking truth and counseling everybody, I say, I, I want to ask you if you're really speaking in a way that's loving, because you might not be. There's a lot of Christians who aren't. And the person who's having a conversation, afraid to ruffle feathers, I might say, are you living more in fear of men than you are living in fear of God? There comes a time where we have to speak truth, come what may. And I think as well, that's an almost impossible needle to thread, but God gave you some immutable characteristics and some immutable qualities that I'm assuming he gave you so that he could use those. And so not everyone's going to be William Farrell. Not everyone's going to be St. Nicholas, who's going to basically, you know, fight a guy in a church meeting over, you know, a heretical sure. statement that was made. But some people are wired for that. And so you have to temper that just like with anything else. Sex is a blessing, but it can become an idol. Food is a blessing, but it can become an idol. Same thing with this. You can say, I'm like with me, I'm a prophet. I'm going to speak truth. But if that's all you ever do, then guess what? You're bludgeoning people to death. And then when you look behind you, there's nobody following yeah. you because they're all in pieces and, you know, a pile of blood behind you. So there's always that little bit. And if you're the more sensitive, you know, stoic type person and all that, God wants to be able to use that quality as well. But don't be the Christian. Don't be the conservative that looks up one day, realizes that the war has ended and every battle has passed you by and you never found a hill that was worth dying on. You never found a hill that was worth getting your sword, putting your helmet on and charging up because you just couldn't find it in your heart to do so. But, but Sean, we're, we're, we're unfortunately out of time, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Um, you know what? Uh, if you still want me back, even though we differed on a couple issues, I think you knocked it out of the park. I do it for sure. That was fun. Okay. Well, off air, we will make sure that we can get that going for early next year. Cause you gotta, if you saw my notes, there's a lot of other stuff that we got into. We, we handled most of the incendiary stuff on this one, but I saved a little bit in the tank for later on, but Sean McDowell, thank you for coming on, on Daunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks Kyle. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Sean McDowell. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to Sean's website, his YouTube channel, but also a link to a couple of books we talked about in this episode, A Rebel's Manifesto and Evidence That Demands a Verdict. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at 
life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.